this king will reign forevermore. We began just to sing about that right now. Now we're going to continue to read about this reign of this king, King Jesus. So turn with me to the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. And go with me to the first chapter in the book of Matthew, this first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to begin our time here this morning. Today is all about Jesus reigns forevermore. Jesus reigns throughout history. And I know when I say the word history, for a few of you in this room, that can conjure up maybe some fearful moments from junior high, high school, college, when you had to memorize all kinds of names and dates and it takes you back to that uh, Ben Stein scene in Ferris Bueller Day Off where he's teaching his class and he's like, anyone? Anyone? And they're all just dying because they have absolutely no interest in what the professor is talking about. And so when I say Jesus reigns over history, maybe there's this kind of feeling like, oh, I really need something from you today, God. And this is what you're going to give me. We're going to talk about history. Uh, oh no, can I Google another church really quickly to go? But I want you to understand here today that as we look into biblical history and then we really understand how it intersects with our life here today, it changes everything. It really does. This Christmas will be totally different for you if you can understand that Jesus reigns over history, will reign forevermore, will reign in the future that impacts December 11th, 2016, as we sit here today. December 11th is uh, momentum monumental. I was just scrolling the Rolodex there. Day in my life. It was December 11th, 1978, that my world came crashing down. Larry and Susan Doan had one child. His name was Matt Doan. And he was the object, the perfection of their lives. Everything that this young little baby did, they loved. They pulled out their 1978 Polaroid cameras and took photos of his first steps. They laughed at his attempts at saying little words. Matt Doan was at the center of their universe. And then on December 11th, 1978, everything changed for them. But more importantly, everything changed for me as Jenny Alnora Doan rudely and selfishly came into this world, <laughs> disrupting my perfect existence that I had lived in for three plus years. This is part of my story. This is part of my history. December 11th matters for me which my sister doesn't live in this area, but if you listen to this uh, online, I love you, Jenny, now. I'm happy for you now. Happy birthday. Let's get that out there. <laughs> December 11th, 1944, there was a guy from Seattle, Washington, named Arthur G. Acorn. Kind of a funny last name. Arthur G. Acorn was in the U.S. Army. He was involved in World War II, and he was um, protecting the country of Luxembourg, if you've ever... <laughs> even found that on a map. It's near France, Germany. 
December 11th, 1944 was one of the coldest days of the coldest month in the history of Luxembourg. And so Arthur G. Acorn, my grandfather, was just trying to stay warm. It'd be a few days later after this date, December 11th, that on the front lines he'd be captured by the Axis forces and marched across Germany in the dead of winter, in the middle of December. Over Christmas, he found himself in a POW camp One of the most infamous POW camps in all of Germany, Stalag number two. My grandfather, for the rest of his life, couldn't talk about the things that happened to him there. It was a place that he couldn't go. December 11th and what happened after that changed everything for him, and subsequently it changed everything for my family as we dealt with some of the aftermath of what he experienced. You see, history comes alive when we see how it intersects and how it impacts our lives. And my argument with us today is that Matthew 1, as we look at biblical history, as we look at the family genealogy and lineage of Jesus, it greatly, greatly impacts us. And I want you to see it for yourself. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Look at simply at this verse. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Simple verse right there, opening up the book. Notice, though, what Matthew does not say here in verse 1 of the opening of the gospel. He doesn't say, once upon a time. Let me walk you down a nice little story. Instead, Matthew opens up this gospel by saying, this is the account of Jesus. This isn't just a story, a a hopeful whim and wish that wouldn't it be nice if Jesus actually existed, kind of like Santa. No, no, no. As Matthew unlocks this gospel, telling the story of Jesus, he is grounded in historical fact. You see, Jesus actually lived. Jesus was really born in an actual place. Jesus really, in real life, in all reality, went to a tree. Not a Christmas tree, but a cross. Jesus gave his life on that tree. Not for anything he had done, but for us, you and I, as sinners before a holy God, Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. That's a reality It actually happened. And Jesus rose again. He's alive today. He is alive as anything is alive. Jesus exists. Jesus was an actual person, a figure. Matthew here tips us off too that this Jesus was a pretty important figure before he even gets into anything about what Jesus would do. He says that he was the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham and David, two heroes of the Israel faith. Two heroes of everyone who grew up in this region. If you somehow said, yeah, yeah, I'm connected to one of these guys, you'd be, oh, wow, you're kind of a big deal. I'm connected to both of these guys. Oh, wow, wow, I I need to pay attention to this. Because what was underneath the idea of being connected to Abraham and David was a covenant between God and Abraham and David. 
says the son of Abraham. Here's the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis 12, you don't have to look there, but see on the screen. It says, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one, this is God talking, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's called the Abrahamic covenant. The first covenant between God and man. God making a promise to Abraham that through you, I will bless all the nations. There'll be something unique that comes through your line. Pay attention, world. This history matters. And you begin to look at verse 2, and you see Abraham's history unpacked. Abraham, verse 2 of Matthew 1, here it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. <laughs> Aminadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. We'll stop right there for a moment. Last week we talked about Jesus reigns is over Satan. He has victory over Satan, but that didn't stop Satan from trying to attack the Messiah. Not only on the day that he was born, but as Dave and Matt Davis talked to us about, attack his lineage. And again, I want to remind us that there was a great spiritual attack on this line. This covenant between Abraham and God was attacked right from the beginning. If you're a student of your Bible and you know the history, you know that Abraham and his wife Sarah couldn't have any kids. Not only was this a social problem because you were looked down upon, particularly as a woman, if you were barren, you couldn't have kids. But also it was a major problem for this promise of God to go forth. How can you be a blessing to all nations if you can't even have one kid? And so you see the spiritual warfare begin in that moment right away for Abraham and Sarah as Abraham's tempted to have a child with another woman, Hagar. Today, if you even research biblical history and follow that through even to modern times, we're still even paying a price for that. As the world is divided and traces their lineage back to either Hagar or Sarah. And so right away there's spiritual warfare around Abraham. But then you keep looking at these verses here in Matthew and you see really spiritual warfare and trouble existed with every single line from there. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, we know, battled his brother Esau in the womb. Jacob lied and stole the blessing for a bowl of soup from his brother. Jacob wandered away and was tracked down and tried to be murdered by his brother. And so you can see that the covenant was threatened moment by moment. And in verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar, you can read this later in Genesis, was the daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah's sons died. They were evil and God struck them down. And because of that, there was no offspring to carry on the family line of Judah. And so Tamar 
in a rated R scene from the Bible, dresses herself up as a prostitute, sits by the city gates, and beckons her father-in-law to come sleep with her. He does, and the next offspring is produced. Keep going in your Bible. It continues to go from there. Verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute herself. And so you can see that time and time again, there was a spiritual attack, a spiritual war on this covenant between Abraham and God. Satan wanted nothing more than to stop this promise from carrying on. And yet, Jesus reigns over history. And this promise could not be thwarted. Instead, Jesus said, oh yeah, Satan? Well, guess what? I'm going to turn all this upside down. And I'm going to use unusable people. I'm going to use people who are social misfits and outcasts and sexually immoral. I'm going to use them. And then I'm going to stamp it with something. And that stamp's going to say, God's grace. There is grace all over the history of Jesus. It's interesting because throughout time, people have modified their family lineage so that they could kind of conveniently leave out certain family members that were embarrassing them. I'm sure you have an uncle or so that... Maybe you would conveniently want to white out of your family tree. (laughs) Herod is one example of that. Herod was both a Jew and an Edomite. Being an Edomite in his culture was not such a good thing. And so Herod conveniently had that part of his family tree erased. So that he would only have a Jewish lineage. Here's Jesus reigning over history saying, you know what? I'm okay having in my line prostitutes. And liars and social outcasts, even Gentiles. That's okay, because you know what? It's going to show that I reign over history, and it's going to show that I am a God of grace. Who needs grace here? Anybody need grace? Oh, man. So thankful that this is a character and attribute of our God. And then it continues from there. You see the covenant established through David. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. This is the covenant between God and David. It says this, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So now we have another covenant made between God and a man. This is David, King David. Look at verse 6 of Matthew 1. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. So a first century reader might read this lineage of Jesus. In the first five verses, they would say like, ooh, wow, Jesus related to that person and, and that person. And oh, it's a pretty ugly family tree right here. But then they would get to verse 6 and they would see, oh, but David, King David, The guy that's after God's heart, like, okay, now I can see. This is why Matthew's recording this genealogy. He wants everyone to see that David is related to Jesus, or more importantly, Jesus is related to David. According to the covenant, it was important that 
the Messiah, the future king, would have to be from the house of David, the line of David. So one of the purposes of Matthew is to show that, to show that Jesus, by all legal authority, is related to David. The other history of Jesus' family is found in Luke. And in Luke, his concern is to show the biological relationship that David has in his tree to Jesus. But here in Matthew, it's the legal relationship that Jesus has to the house of David. And so people would be looking at that like, okay, noble, noble guy here in his lineage. But look at what verse 6 says when talking about David. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Oh, this is like a little dig at David. Matthew recording here. He's saying, yeah, yeah, David's a great guy. I want to remind everybody how Solomon came to be about. You see, David had this buddy, this guy named Uriah. He was one of David's mighty men. He was one of his best friends. Imagine one of your best friends. David saw his best friend's wife. And David wanted his best friend's wife. And so he conveniently had his best friend killed. With friends like that, who needs enemies? <laughs> and so Matthew's reminding us here, this great guy David, he's got a little bit of a dark past as well. Because remember Bathsheba? Oh yeah, that was Uriah's wife, the text tells us here. Again, you see the spiritual war that's at place in the family line of Jesus, experiencing hard things, temptations, and obstacles. But you also see this graceful covenant at work. Jesus is not thwarted by anything. God's not limited by our history. Instead, he's actively involved in biblical history, working everything out for his good, and the banner over it all is grace. Grace. What a beautiful portrait here. Look at verse 7. Matthew 1, verse 7. I'm going to read down several verses. If you would turn to the person next to you and just say, I'm glad Matt's reading it and not me. Just say that to the person next to you. Okay, now I feel better about reading it. <laughs> Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijai, Abijai the father of Asa, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became, that's how I feel too, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So you have from Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian exile. One of the lowest points in the history of Israel. The exile from the promised land. They lose the promised land. And they're put back under captivity. Verse 12, after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel became the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. 
And Abihahud was the father of Elikim, and Elikim was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matthian, and <laughs> Matthian was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Earlier, in 2017, we're going to actually unpack some of the names I just read as we go through the Chronicles of the Kings. And you're going to read about and learn about more about these kings. Most of them, the majority of them, did evil in God's sight. They were raised up to lead the people spiritually. And they failed. And here's Jesus coming from this line. God's control over history, God's grace written all over it. Verse 17, Matthew 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. A little random Bible fact for you is the word David in Hebrew. Is each Hebrew letter is assigned a number. And so the word D in Hebrew is assigned a four. The word V, just using the consonants, is a six. And then again, the word D, using just the three consonants of his name, is a four. Four plus six is ten. Ten plus four is... Oh boy, okay, fourteen. So again, Matthew painstakingly showing fourteen, fourteen, fourteen. This is David's... House. Jesus came from this line. He has a legal right to the throne. This is another reason to worship Jesus as the king, as the Messiah, because he's from David's royal line. So this is biblical history 101. Let me show you how it intersects with our history, and this is where I believe it will impact us. In Ephesians chapter 1, turn from Matthew 1 to Ephesians 1. We're just going to stay here for a minute, but you've got to see this for yourselves. Ephesians chapter 1, written by Paul. Look at verse 17. It says this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Go back to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Then bounce over to verse 21, Ephesians 1, 21. For far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1 gives us this great portrait of like, 
so what? So Jesus came. He came into this world. He was from the line of David. He went to a tree. He died on that tree. He rose again on the third day, overcoming sin. So what? So that we could experience grace. We could have our trespasses, our sin that we all carry on us, the weight of falling short before God, all nailed to that tree with Jesus Christ, once and for all. I know several of us here have a Catholic background. And some of the baggage that you can bring from that background is this idea that I'm never sure if I'm totally forgiven. You know, I'm forgiven for today. I came here to church. I feel okay. But what about tomorrow? What about the day after that? Church is until next Sunday. What am I going to do on Friday? And yet the message of the scriptures you see here in Ephesians 1 is that it's finished. Jesus' death on the cross is once and for all. Done. Count on it. Fact. Your history needs Jesus. And as a follower of Christ, when you place your faith in him, your history and Jesus' history intersect. And that changes everything. Everything. You may be walking in here today with a ton of burdens, but knowing that you're forgiven once and for all by Jesus changes everything. You may have more bills than what's in your account right now. But Jesus changes everything. You can have hope despite the fears and struggles of your life. Because your history and Jesus' history connect. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And then let me tell you something about the future. You see... What we should all know is that Jesus not only reigns in the past and over history and over your history, but Jesus reigns in the future. You know, a lot of us are obsessed with the future. And we think about, what's, what's life going to be like? Are we all going to be driving like, you know, driverless cars in the next five or six years? Will we eventually get to Mars? Are we going to have solar panels that actually work? Like, what's life going to be like? 10, 20, 40, 50 years from now. It's hard to answer every question on what the future will hold, but one thing we know is as we wait for the future, we know that Jesus reigns over the future, and so we eagerly await. Hebrews 9, it says these great words. So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Are you eagerly awaiting the Messiah who reigned over biblical history, who reigns over your history, and will reign in the future? This is a picture of my kids at Christmas last December. We do something, maybe your parents did this, or maybe you as a parent, you do this to your kids too. But we literally torture our poor kids on Christmas morning. Because there's this whole like series of things that we have to do before they can open their gifts. Are you with me on that? Did you experience that in your childhood? They'll be counseling afterwards, we can talk it through. 
But we do several things. One is that we have to take a picture of them in front of the fireplace holding their stockings like this photo right here. And they're dying to open their presents. They're like, we, we, we can't wait. Actually, this was done at like 3 in the morning too, by the way, because they were up so early. But we make them wait. They have to do the family photo op. And then at times, we'll read the Luke 2 account of Jesus' birth. And they're just dying, like, come on, come on, come on. And then we're reading, taking it in. And then we have to, I have to make some coffee. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, we get some hot chocolate. We get all situated. And they're just like, can it ever come? Please. This is how we should be when it comes to anticipating Jesus and his return, the second advent. Please, God, can it be today? Please, 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 dude, please don't wait anymore. Right now, Jesus, please come back. Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it tonight? When's it going to be? Come on, Jesus, come. The last words of Revelation say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Is that your posture as we head into this Christmas season? Celebrating the first advent, but really looking ahead to the second advent as well. We can have hope for the future, not based on if our political party won or lost. Not based on really how many Facebook friends we have, if anyone ever does Facebook anymore. We can base our hope in the future on the fact that Jesus is coming back. In the same way that he really came into this world, he is really coming back. Philippians says it so well, Philippians 2, just read the screen, it says, For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Such beautiful words right there. So as we anticipate the return of Jesus, we know that he not only reigns in biblical history, he reigns in our history, but he reigns today. It's called the here but not yet. It's kind of like a pregnant woman. A pregnant woman is a mother. She's fully a mother when she's pregnant with a child. Which, guys, never make this mistake. With our first child, Marie was pregnant with Lily, and it was Mother's Day. And I didn't even acknowledge Mother's Day. Lord Jesus. <laughs> Don't make that mistake. You're fully a mother when you're pregnant. And yet, you don't fully experience all that motherhood has to offer until the baby is born. Do you get it? And that's kind of how the reign of Jesus is in our life right now. Jesus reigns over history. Jesus reigns over our own personal history, taking our sins to the cross. Jesus reigns today, December 11th, 2016. But it's here, but it's still kind of coming. We'll experience the full inauguration of the king when he returns for the second advent. I can't wait for that. I hope that brings you excitement and joy, even right now. So here's the bottom line. As we go throughout our life this month, as we look for parking places at the mall to get something that's super expensive, we're not even sure if someone's going to like it, 
as we make stuff in the house and we listen to Christmas music, as we go to work parties and we finish finals, and we do all the things that the next few weeks require. As followers of Jesus, knowing that Jesus reigns over history in all forms, knowing that he reigns even over the future, we should live as people of peace. A peace like no one else has. Literally, you guys, as we go through our lives, we should look so much different than anyone that's not following Jesus because we have a peace. God's in control. He reigns. He showed me over history that he reigns. He showed me in my life that he reigns. I know in the future he'll reign. So I can trust that he's going to reign in my day today. So let me ask you a question. Do you have peace right now? Do you have peace? Some next steps. Thinking through this whole idea of Jesus reigning. Maybe you don't have peace because you're not a Christian. You haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Today, let today be the day you place your faith in Jesus. It's simple. During worship, you can come up and talk to somebody over to the sides. Or even on your, your chair, you can just simply make this your prayer. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can do nothing to earn your favor. I rely on your son, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins once and for all. I invite you, Jesus, to be the Savior, the leader, the Lord of my life today. You can do that today. And you can find a peace that you'll never find in anything else. Maybe as we heard even in announcements this morning, you need to make sure that you're at uh, the longest night. You need to make sure that you put that on your calendar and you come and you just give over your burdens to the Lord that evening. And say, God, I want to be a person who walks in peace. And as we think through the next year too, the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. It's meant to be lived in partnership, better together. Will 2017 be the year that you step out of anonymity and join a group? Walk through life with other Christians. As we approach the tables here today, there's an opportunity to take communion, remembering what Jesus did on the ultimate tree, giving his life for you and I. You can come and take the bread and the juice if you're a follower of Jesus and remember his sacrifice. There's also a place the tables to give. It's an act of worship to give financially. And there'll be places to pray over here at the, both of the prayer points. If you want to come over and just ask someone, hey, pray with me over this. I want to become a Christian. Pray with me right now. You can take advantage of that as we respond and worship right now. So let's pray and let's meet with God. Father, I thank you that it is true that you reign. You reign over everything and everyone. And Lord, as we anticipate the inauguration of your completed kingdom, God, allow us in this moment here today to cast our burdens and our anxiety on you, knowing that because you reign over history, you'll be faithful for today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.